Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Adam Sandel. He's a philosopher, Guinness World Record holder for most pull-ups in one minute, and an award-winning teacher. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Place of Prejudice, A Case for Reasoning Within the World. And uh, Adam has taught at Harvard University and is currently an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. His newest book, available now, is called Happiness in Action, A Philosopher's Guide to the Good Life. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. So, you know, usually we start off with a quote from your from a book, from a, the kind of a, the sort of guest book. So, but today I kind of want to start off with an anecdote. So Alan and I actually ended up going to a comedy show on Friday night, and I felt like it was super applicable to your work, or rather your work was super applicable to it. So we went to go see Ari Shafir, and uh, Andrew Schultz was one of his guests. And so we're sitting in the show, and, you know, we're kind of, we're enjoying it, obviously. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, oh my God, man, like, this is the dumbest fucking thing in the world, right? So you have a bunch of people who paid to like to hear just really kind of brilliant and dumb jokes at the same time right and then so you know as i'm kind of thinking about it i'm thinking like oh my god you know like what is it that this is what's the purpose of this right like what is this for and so you know as the kind of night is going on and you know was, you know we're, we're actually like obviously enjoying it and you, you know we're talking we're sort of talking to each other or whatever you know the jokes or whatever are crude but you know something like comedy doesn't really have much of a purpose and so as i'm reading your book and i'm kind of applying it now to some of the i don't know, I guess some of my life, right? I'm also wondering how many times do I actually give up on things that I shouldn't probably give up on, things that I could potentially enjoy. And so comedy to me was such a great example because in this two-hour period, it was just it was just fun for like the sake of itself. And it was probably the dumbest fucking thing that we could do at that time <laughs> for that money, you know? So it's like instead of doing something, you know, productive, uh striving for something, you know, maybe working on our podcast, uh, you know, so I'm a writer doing something like that. I was like, wow, man, we spent two hours, we spent a lot of money, but it was fun for the sake of itself right and then so as i'm reading your book i'm thinking about what is it that kind of stops us from doing that and what is it that sort of makes us feel so guilty for enjoying something like a comedy show so like again on the one hand this thing was completely purposeless right so you know apparently there's no like a social justice sort of a kind of aura to it or, or it's not goal oriented yeah right? right 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 so there's no like sort of social justice justice aspect to it and it's not really getting us anywhere right so you know alan and i we left that night and then we woke up the next morning and nothing changed right our lives were the same and kind of we went on about them right but what is it about us adam you know in Obviously, now going into your writing, what is it about us that makes it so kind of again makes us feel so guilty and makes us feel like you know we have to have a life that's solely driven by purpose and goals? Well, we live in a society that prides its goal orientation. I mean, um, just uh, think about what consumes our daily lives: achievements, great and small. You know, whether it's getting a promotion at work or whether it's uh, checking off boxes on the to-do list or whether it's um, setting a personal best in a race or, or something, we're very goal-oriented and there's nothing wrong with goals per se, but the problem arises when is when we begin to define our self-worth by how close we are to achieving goals and it consumes us. And what happens is we lose precisely the joy that you're describing, Leon, the joy of something for its own sake activity for the sake of itself. And I think the comedy show is a great example. And events like that, at least momentarily, pull us out of this goal-oriented existence. And there's something quite liberating about them. You're just having fun. You know, you're kicking it, you're laughing, sharing it with friends who you're there with. And in, in a certain sense, it's pointless. I think it's pointless in the sense that it's not goal-oriented. But I think we could say that there's a larger meaning to it. It's not meaningless. And I think the meaning comes from enjoying the jokes as windows onto the human condition and, and to our own experience. You know, the best kind of jokes are the ones that highlight an aspect of our daily lives, sometimes an absurdity of our daily lives, and, and just put it into the right words that allow us to be self-reflective in a certain way, actually. So we're engaged even if we don't really realize it in the process of interpretation, even as we're sitting there in the comedy show. And I think there's something quite liberating about that because it it channels our intellect, our power to interpret the world in a different way, even though we're not consciously focusing on it necessarily. You know, self-deprecating humor is a type of humor I always like. And it it 
there is something very freeing, liberating, because it it often is making fun of uh, mishaps, failures. But in doing so, in presenting those mishaps and failures in front of an audience in a funny way, it actually teaches us that failure um, can be the occasion for for joy. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's an important lesson. Yeah. And, you know, being goal oriented it in itself, it's not a bad thing. Just I, the issue is that we sort of train ourselves to say, oh, I'll be happy when I'll be happy when this goal is attained. Like, oh, when I have this job, I'm going to be happy. Oh, when I get uh, married, when I have a a girlfriend, when I have children, I'll be happy. I'll be happy when this happens, when that happens, right? And it's like we're training ourselves to never be happy in the now, right? And that's very interesting because it's like we'll never, we're basically setting ourselves up to never get there, essentially. And I feel like that's the wrong way to sort of see things. Yeah, definitely. And what you realize is you're the same person. You have this lofty goal. Once I once I get married or once I land the dream job, somehow my life is going to be justified. It's all going to be so different than than the crappy life I have now. You know, finally, I'm going to be there, you know, the the promised land. And then you realize, no, I'm the same person. You carry yourself with you. And if you don't have some sense of self that you're bringing to those new situations, uh, you're going to find that, that you're still stuck in, in the same framework. Yeah. Yeah. And then going back to the comedy show, there was this joke that Ari Shafir had about, um, so it was essentially about, so here's the thing with him. I don't want to get into this uh, too much because that's not really the point of our show, but the thing with him is like, he says something that like sort of builds up enough tension where you're thinking he's about to say something horrifically offensive. And then he kind of pulls back and you're like, oh my God, wow, that's what he was going to say. It's like not offensive at all. That's hilarious. Right. So that's what I really love about him. But he had this joke where he's talking about, uh, so he's talking about trans people, but he's talking specifically about female to male trans people. And essentially, um, no, I'm sorry, male to female, that they essentially become competitors. And he was talking about the trans swimmer issue. So whatever, right? And you're thinking about this and you're going, okay, like, where is he going with this? And then he, the kind of punchline is like, yeah, well, I don't give a shit about like, uh, what was it? He said, I didn't give a shit about like women's gymnastics or whatever, right? I didn't give a shit about like women's Olympic swimming, right? And you know, it's sort of- like, why is this a story? Yeah. And it was like, oh, like, why are we talking about like, I, I never cared about uh, like amateur uh, women's swimming or something like right. that, which, which is, you know, I thought that was hilarious. Because like I didn't even think he was gonna go there. We thought he was gonna go into some really offensive sort of place. We're like, right. oh crap! Like, where is he going with this? But yeah, right, right. Yeah. So right. And my thinking about this was, you know, like, so I'm um, first of all, I feel a little bit guilty, right? So when I laughed at the joke, I laughed at it because th- there was a truth to it, right? So like we were just talking about, there's some truth in comedy, but it also made it okay for me to say, like, yeah, honestly. I don't really care about this issue that much either, right? But, you know, of course, kind of the more social justice part of me says, like, no, 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 man, like, you can't laugh at this stuff. You have to care about it. But again, you know, that's sort of that goal-oriented sort of psyche that I have, you know, or part of my psyche. And I think a lot of times when we think about, you know, who we're supposed to be in the world, we have to care about, like, everything under the sun, right? So, like, okay, so something like this, and I want to try to be as nuanced as possible about this, right? So I definitely care about trans rights. It's definitely an important issue to me. But, like, this specific issue when he said that i was like yeah you know i i technically don't care i was like if uh, you know people want to compete in this particular sport or they don't want to compete in that particular sport i don't know man like just you guys figure it out it doesn't really matter much to me so i kind of love that because again you're going back to comedy and it sort of allows you to just sort of be and to say like okay yes this is a part of who i am i care about some things and i care about some aspects of social justice but not necessarily all of them and so i really like that going back into your book is that there's a part of it that says like, dude, it's okay to chill out. It's okay to kind of be in a friendship, right? One aspect of it, which I definitely want to get into. It's okay to be in a friendship and just to be in it for its own sake. That you guys aren't trying to make the world a better place. Like, you know, even the friendship that I have with Alan, right? We're doing this podcast. Obviously, there's some aspect to it. But most of the time, we're just shooting the shit, man. We're just shooting the shit and talking about movies, comedy, whatever it is. And it's not really going anywhere. So yeah, Adam, can we kind of get into that and your conception of friendship and why it's sometimes okay for you to just be and just be friends with somebody for its own purpose. Definitely. I think that friendship is is some is a virtue. And I say virtue, we we've lost the term virtue in in describing friendship these days. For the ancient Greeks, friendship 
was considered a great virtue, something that actually wasn't so easy to maintain that involved uh, commitment and uh, having somebody's back in situations that are tough. And I think we respect that ideal today, but I think we we tend to uh, to lose this uh, this connection to friendship in a highly goal oriented society where we seek many many allies to get this done or that done. Yep. You know, a, a partner in some it could be a social justice mission. You know, trying to make the world a better place, or it could simply be a career goal, a personal goal. Um, where we have a lot of connections, people we can talk shop with, but not friends in the genuine sense of people who we share a, a history with, uh, who who whose back we have, and we know they have our back. Um, and more than that, people who help us interpret our lives and make us the people who we are. Um, so friendship in that sense is very easy to lose in a in a highly goal driven mode of existence. Right. No, totally. Right. I mean, if you're in a sort of um, I would say like a sort of a taker's orientation versus a giver's orientation, right? Like, okay, uh, what can I get from you? What can you do for me? Right. Like you you forge these alliances hoping to get something from them, right? But I mean, when you come from sort of a giver's orientation, you actually forge bonds with somebody who, like you said, has your back, um, who might listen to you if you have some sort of an issue or you do vice versa, um, have great times with them as well. And these are some of the aspects of life that are uh, arguably the most important, right? It's going for what somebody can do for you just so you can sort of further yourself, Um there is some kind of a use to that. Uh, I suppose don't get me wrong, but I don't want to throw it out completely. But uh, it's definitely it it kind of sucks the air out of uh, what's really meaningful and might contribute to le legitimate happiness, uh, right. genuine happiness. Right. And by the way, and just to add on to that, it, doesn't it also kind of seem like sort of there's a some a contradiction or a juxtaposition between sort of happiness and striving? Because every time we are striving, I mean, we're very rarely happy at the same time. So is that kind of what you're saying too, Adam? Yes. And the more we strive, the more we lose what attracted us to the activity in the first place. I think this is a universal experience where you start to do something because you genuinely love to do it. It could be taking up a sport. Um, it could be writing or playing a musical instrument, whatever. What attracts you to it is the intrinsic beauty of it, the um, the challenge of it that's thrilling in the moment as you're engaging in it. But then you begin to ask yourself, well, how good am I compared to that other guy? And you begin to define your own enjoyment in terms of how close you are to a goal, you know, in, in terms of some ranking um, or whatnot. And that really detracts from the intrinsic joy of the activity. And it, and it stops us from considering, well, what is it about that activity that initially drew me to it? Why is this a special thing in, in the total context of my life? And I think that mode of thought, trying to interpret, trying to place things together, trying to piece together the various aspects of our life into a coherent whole is such an important thing and is of the essence of self-possession. And I think that we lose that when we just focus on achieving goals. Mm -hmm. And um, what what is self possession um, like? How would how would you define that? I would distinguish it from self confidence. I think that's the best way to get at it. Self confidence would be feeling yourself capable of accomplishing a particular task or in a particular domain. You feel in command because you're used to doing it, uh, because you have a certain expertise, a certain knowledge, and you're confident. Self possession, as I understand it, is something deeper and more comprehensive. It has to do with the way you carry yourself and everything that you do. It has to do with how you face uncertainty, failure, even disaster. How are you able to piece together your life when things fall apart? And I, I think it requires an, a, a kind of narrative sensibility, understanding your life as a journey that is 
connected to people and places that that forms a kind of horizon of intelligibility, you know, who you are, where you're going, so that you can incorporate losses, you can bounce back, you can reinterpret things. Um, I think self-possession also has to do with embracing a spirit of adventure. Mm. As, as strong a sense of self as you have, you recognize that there's more to your life than you can possibly know or foresee at any given moment. So embracing the mysterious, the unknown, you know, the beyond. And so that's how I would describe it in contrast to self-confidence, which is, which is very much goal oriented or kind of uh, limited to a, a certain realm um what would you say is a sort of like a a pitfall on the way to being able to see this sort of horizon or like this overarching perspective of your of your life because there's this one part in the in the book uh it's actually somewhere near the beginning uh, to be fair it's a, it's about um the ego um and how uh, it sort of derives it, uh, Wait, it has actually a... i'll read the quote I will, I will I will actually read the quote. Yeah, because this is actually a really great quote. Yeah, so that's where I was going to go. So actually, so oh, pause and I will read it. All right. So Adam wrote in his okay. book, as we, will, as we will see throughout our investigation of self-possession, friendship and engagement with nature, we find the meaning of life when we are immersed in activity for its own sake, when we are in turn inward, scrutinizing our thoughts and emotions or turn outward toward the finish line of some project. To be so immersed is to overcome the distinction between in my mind and out there. For what I face, so to speak, in the midst of activity, activity is nothing but my very self, a self that is at the same time a world. What we take to be e to be the ego or subjective consciousness that so often intrudes in daily life, drawing comparison to others, separating itself from what it does and what it uses, worrying that things might fall apart, turns out to be a derivative reality subordinate to the enacted story expressed in the flow of activity. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I love that. I I love that so much. I, it's it's worded in such a beautiful way too. Like it's like oh, it, it creates a derivative reality. That's that's great because it it put it places this picture in your mind of like no, there's there's actual reality with a capital R, and there's something like a like your consciousness. Sorry, your uh, ego is essentially creating a small aspect, um, arguably a false sort of narrative of like millions of different variables that could be taken into consideration. And I, I, I don't know, uh, how, how can somebody maybe um, understand better how to sort of navigate uh, the ego in order to become more uh, sort of self-possessive or possessing? Yeah, I think attentiveness to what captivates you in the world uh, around you in your daily life that that often you look at, you notice for a moment, you know, beautiful sunrise or something that catches your attention that if you just dwelled on it for a moment and began to, to think about it and, and try to make sense of why it captivates you, what's so beautiful about it? How would you share it with, with your wife at the end of the day or with a, with a good friend? I think that that's where to start that, that it, these things pull us out of our selves. If by self, we mean a, a kind of self-conscious, uh, you know, self-conscious reflection or the ego sure. that, and we come to realize that who we are, isn't simply an individual ego, but rather somebody who's open to a world that presents itself with certain meanings to be interpreted. Um, and that in the process of interpreting them, we grow as people. So that whatever person we start with isn't the person who we who we end up being, you know, after we set ourselves to to thinking and engaging with with the things around us. So I think attentiveness and of course the enemy to that kind of attentiveness is the pressure of the workday. You know, you mm. you gotta move on, you know, you gotta make breakfast, pack your bags and get on the bus or whatever. So I think just taking the time, and it doesn't have to be a lot in, in the practice of our daily lives, just to, to stop for a second and, and think and interpret. And that pulls us out of this kind of self-conscious reflection. Perhaps the, the, the experience that I, that I was trying to express in that, 
quote that you read is is best captured from my own perspective when I'm engaged in intense athletic activity believe it or not that this kind of being in the in the moment being in the flow um like when I'm in the midst of a a hard training session of of pull-ups you know training to to set a record or, or just you know training with a buddy of mine just just for the sake of it you know because we love to train and and you know you're in the middle of the set you're trying to get your chin over the bar that one final time and it's uh it's very intense and, and you're taken outside of yourself but also returned to yourself and by that i mean you come to understand yourself as a force that is working with your surroundings at the same time as you're struggling. So, you know, the the force of gravity that's pulling you down, but that, but you realize that's also the same force that's giving you the grip on the bar and that's allowing you to rebound upward for one more rep. So it's not like gravity is this external force entirely. It's a partner in a shared activity. So you're, you're at one with nature, but at the same time, you're appropriating nature within your activity and you can bring friendship into that too. You know, your training partners shouting, encouraging, you know, come on, you got this one more rep. And so there is a kind of community who you are in that moment is not just an isolated individual. It's not the person who's thinking, Oh, am I going to succeed? Am am I going to fail? It's not the person who's thinking, okay, well, this is one training session. And then next week I'm going to have another and try to, get one more rep and then maybe eight weeks from now I'll be ready to, you know, test my max or something like that. No, all of that vanishes in the midst of this intense activity and you realize a very different connection to the world. And that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. And I love the kind of personal aspect of it. So what makes this so interesting to me now going into uh, kind of the athletic part of your life is that you sort of see how unstable all of it is. So I remember when I, so I'm a writer and I remember when I was sort of striving to be published and I'm thinking, you know, once I finally get published, like at this particular publication, I'm finally going to make it right. This is going to sort of be it for me. And then once that happened, it was nice for like a couple of days and, you know, people like, oh my God, like this is so cool or whatever. People would share my work, uh, you know, whatever. They would leave me good comments, feedback, et cetera. And then after after a while, I'm like, oh, cool. I'm pretty much back to where I started. So I love that you use the example of the pull-up record because essentially you get it and then you lose it. And then you try to get it again and then you lose it again, right? So what you're seeing at that time is fundamentally is that there's no such thing as an endpoint. And as we're striving for goals because nature is so kind of it's fluctuating all the time, is that there's no such thing as like an endpoint. And so Adam, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your personal experience now and how that informed your philosophy? I had the, so I set this record back in 2016 for the first time, most pull-ups in a minute. And back then it was, I got 50, 51. The, the previous record was 50. And I was thrilled. I didn't know how long it was going to stand. But what I didn't realize was that just, I think a couple months later, two, two people broke it in succession. Someone got 53 and then someone got 54. And these were, you know, a guy from Italy and a guy from Bulgaria. So all of a sudden that great accomplishment, you know, that I had worked so hard to achieve was just eclipsed. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, well, what is there to do, but try for it again. And, you know, I was motivated certainly by the record. I, you know, I'm not going to say that the competition didn't inspire me, but I was just, I, I just love training and doing pull-ups. I've always loved sports always been very active and it's been a part of my life. So why not? You know, I love doing it. Train. Okay. 55. That stood. I was able to get 55. Then that stood um, until someone else broke that. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to get 60, 60 and 60 seconds. It's going to be, you know, my greatest accomplishment yet. And it's just such a cool thing to say. I can do 60 pull-ups in 60 seconds. And I was able to get 61 and damn. yeah. And th- I said, like, I sort of said that to myself, like, damn, that, that was good. You know, pat yourself on the back. You know, I, I didn't think I, or many of the other competitors had much more in the tank than 61. And then a guy got 62 
<laughs> wow. and, uh, yeah, th this was uh, this was a kind of uh, a cool thing, and and th this is what brought brought my own pull ups chase to a, a little bit of public attention. It was um, a guy with an amazing story. He was a national wrestling champion, and he had won the NCAA wrestling championships only having one leg, which was oh, to me oh. an astounding achievement. And he took up pull-ups and he, um, he, he got 62 shortly after I'd gotten 61, he'd been following my record. And, you know, I felt kind of honored that this athlete who had risen to national prominence, you know, ESPN had done a piece on him, had taken interest in this rather niche record <laughs> pursued and uh so it got like it, it got some some public attention because he had done his attempt at like halftime at the Jets game or something and wow I was like wow okay so let's let's keep it going you know I you gotta start training again and I was so then uh, fast forward a couple months I I was able to get 68 wow Wow, that seems pretty. Yeah, I'm sure you thought that that was impossible at the time. You know, your perspective changes. Uh, seeing mm -hmm. is believing. You see other athletes do something that you thought wasn't possible, and then it just changes your whole paradigm. And then you you say, "Well, I can do that too." And of course, there's a certain limit to that. Like, who knows? Tomorrow we might wake up and someone gets like 85 pull-ups, and I'm like, "Okay, I can't." I'm not going to be able to do that. I know my limits. Like right, right, right. maybe the current record is 74, by the way. Wow. Guy from China. So yeah, I held it for two years, about at 68. Then a guy from China reached 74 in uh, 2020. And since then I've been trying to get it back, but uh, not yet, but, but someday soon, maybe I will. Well, you know what this makes me think of? So the parable of the Chinese farmer, I don't know. Have you guys heard of it? Oh, so, okay. So the parable of the Chinese farmer goes like this. So essentially a Chinese farmer loses his horse, right? So his neighbors come to him and they say, oh my God, this is so terrible. We can't believe you lost your horse, right? And he says, I don't know. We'll see. The next day, so the horse returns and the horse returns with another horse, a wild horse. The neighbors come back to the farmer and they say, oh my God, it was actually a blessing. This is amazing. The farmer says, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. The next day, the the new horse, the wild horse ends up throwing his son off of it, right? So the son breaks his leg. And then the the neighbors come back and they're like, no, 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 actually we were wrong. This was a terrible thing. Oh my God, this horse was like evil, right? Or it's like cursed or whatever. And the farmer says, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. The next day there's a conscription. And now, so people uh, within the age limit, whatever it is, 18 to 24. Now they're sort of taken into the army and they have to fight in this war against, you know, some other kind of clan or whatever. But the kid doesn't have to go to war because he has a broken leg. The neighbors again come back and they're like, oh my God, actually we were wrong. This was this great thing. And of course the Chinese farmer again says, I don't know, we'll see. So the point of the story is I'm sure you guys already can gather is that like we can't we're terrible at predicting right we are so bad at predicting what will make us happy uh we're so bad at predicting the future and yet we think we know what will make us happy so what i love about this philosophy and this way of like looking at life and of being is essentially first of all number one we're missing out on so much by not being in the moment and by not enjoying what's in front of us that's obviously you know in this case obvious but then the second thing is that we don't even know what will make us happy so like i said you know i thought oh my god being published here's this thing that's going to finally make me feel like i've made it even though i still don't feel like I've made it. And this goes back to the work of Ken and Sheldon, who we had on several months ago, and I really love this. He says, and he has a whole chapter on this in his book on free will. He says, yeah, we're notoriously terrible at predicting what will make us happy. So, you know, we kind of have these goals, right? And we think, okay, once I reach X, Y, and Z, I'm going to finally be happy. And again, like I did, I will feel like I've made it. But, you know, going back to this parable of the Chinese farmer, why it's so timeless is that because it essentially tells you when you look at what's good and you look at what's bad, be really, really careful about appearances because oftentimes they're they're deceptive. So this thing that seems terrible on the surface might actually somehow end up being a good thing. And this thing that seems really great, like again, me being a published writer, might not necessarily be a bad thing, but at the very least, it's not going to make you as happy. So what Kennan says and what his studies show is that let's say if somebody predicts, uh, let's say, you know, doing X is going to make me happy at a 10, right? We often find that it'll make you happy at like about a five or a six, which is nice. But even still, again, the question is really, and this is what I want to talk to you about, Adam, is why are we so willing to sacrifice the present and the things again, like nature, friendship, or whatever, for these broad term goals that you know probably won't make us as happy. Would you say there's ignorance involved? Uh, you know, 
maybe some self-deception. Uh, what what is it sort of that makes us so willing to sacrifice for the now, or rather the now for the for, for the future? Well, I think it's a, it, it's an abiding human tension, <clears throat> an age old tension between accomplishment and um, activity for its own sake. I don't think it's peculiar necessarily to life today. But what I would add is that I think we are influenced very deeply by philosophies that arose in early modern times and during the Enlightenment that that define human life in terms of moving towards some grand goal. I mean, the very concept of Enlightenment coming out of the Dark Ages and finally attaining wisdom once and for all, wisdom that will liberate us from scarcity, that will allow us to conquer nature, um, wisdom that will allow us to build a just society once and for all to eliminate exploitation from the world. These powerful ideas that arose during the Enlightenment I think deeply influence us today so that when we think of what it means to be a real agent in the world, we think of being an agent of progress and we define progress in all different ways, technological progress, um, social justice, progress, economic progress. So you could define progress however way you want, but you're, you're imagining life as moving towards some grand state of affairs that will be decisively better than now. And I think these philosophies that developed in early modern times and during the Enlightenment just have a great hold on us so that we think what it means to be a responsible, active person who lives a fulfilling life is to live in service of these grand goals. And I think that's a mistake. And I think what ancient philosophy recognizes and that what gets lost in modern times is the instability of all achievement, of all accomplishment. And you see this in a very, very small way when I speak about the pull-ups and the records being broken and all that. But you can look at it in a very large sense in, in on a societal level. You know, the Roman Empire was the greatest thing until it crumbled and fell. And Human achievement is fragile, and even our greatest achievements, um, technological, societal, economic, are, I mean, and, and we do see it today even, that institutions are vulnerable to decay, and, mm -hmm. and uh, the world is open to disruptive forces that we can't predict, natural disaster. Um, sudden political upheaval. So what, what I believe the Greeks recognized was that that these disruptive forces aren't just things that ultimately we can eradicate from existence once we get smarter and more enlightened and kind of more in touch with um, a universal sensibility. No, the, these forces are are endemic to existence into the human condition. So how do you live in the face of uncertainty and disruption? How do you live in a world where the just often suffer and the unjust prevail? And you you have stories like Oedipus, you know, great Greek tragic stories that ultimately I would say point to the need for a redemptive spirit. And that's the background against which friendship is so important because in a world that's constantly vulnerable to disruption you need friends not simply allies because your allies are only going to be as good as that goal uh you know remains a goal but your friends are going to be the ones who pick you up and who help redeem you when things fall apart so you ask why today it's so difficult for us to um, to realize the virtue of friendship, to be self-possessed in this kind of grander sense. And I think it is because of 
these philosophies that have their grip on us, whether we realize it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, are, is one of those philosophies uh, stoicism? Because I, I know in the in the book, uh, you talk about how stoicism is um, uh, somewhat uh, passive, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, could you speak on that a bit? Yeah. Yes, I, I think stoicism has an immense appeal precisely in contrast to the the goal-oriented way of life that that we've been discussing and, and that can be so damaging that stoicism tells us to have a measured distance from our goals and our accomplishments. I think one great thing about stoicism is it specifically um it's it it um brings us face to face I'll I'll put it that way. It brings us face to face with the fragility of achievement and of human life. And, but it it does so in a way that I think is ultimately too passive mm-hmm. and self-effacing. And I think it it is an excuse sometimes for quiescence or for just stepping back and not doing a whole lot about all the the crap that's going on around you. And I think one way of getting at this is Stoicism demotes friendship. Friendship's not bad, of course, according to Stoicism, but according to one popular Stoic author, and I think this represents the Stoic view of friendship quite well, is he calls friendship a preferred indifferent. Wait, is this Massimo or David? Massimo. Yeah. Friendship's <laughs> preferred indifferent. It's something that we would rather have. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have it, that's okay too. We can be indifferent to it. And to me, there's something cold and misguided about that philosophy, actually, that a life without friendship um, is a life that's missing something. Mm-hmm. And I think the the problem with Stoicism is that it's too guarded almost and you know your friends friendship's great but you know friendships fall apart your friend might betray you so don't get too attached you know but that doesn't that just it doesn't do it for me and i think for a lot of people if if they really considered the implications of that they would would be more hesitant to embrace stoicism It's like a lack of commitment, essentially, right? If you're only, it's it's kind of like doing something half-assed in a way, right? Like, um, this person might betray me one day, so I'm going to keep some distance from them, so that, so as not to become so attached that if something bad happens, I will suffer for it. Right. Instead, it's like, uh, if I'm getting it right, you commit to them so fully, so like literally at one hundred percent to the point where uh you will get or you will both get the like the best version of that relationship uh and yes it can fail potentially but not going at it 100 percent uh you 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 miss the richness of that of that bond yeah and i want to add on to that so we also had on brian van norden a couple of times and shout out to him and we talked about confucianism so what's so interesting about this is that so on the one hand something like stoicism well here's the counter argument and i actually would disagree with the counter argument to what you're saying i actually agree with you Uh, so the counter argument in the stoic perspective is like well if i'm working toward being a good person then i'm ultimately going to be a good friend right so who cares how attached i am to you so this is why i bring up brian right so brian would say well but that's kind of like unnatural, right? So Confucius would actually argue that we're going to treat our friends and family in a little bit more of a special way than what we would treat the outsider, right? So the Stoic perspective, in my understanding, is that, well, I'm just a good person to everybody and I'm not really attached to anybody specifically. So, you know, from my perspective, let's say if I'm friends with the, let's say you're a Stoic, right? And, you know, Alan's like really nice to me and he's doing all these great things. You know, the fir- my first thought was like, oh, wow, Alan really likes me. He wants to be my friend. And then I see him with everybody else and I'm like, oh, he's just a fucking Stoic. <laughs> you know? And it kind Kind of takes away some of that specialness. So why I love Confucianism and why I kind of appreciated Brian's perspective so much was because I felt like it was more human. So yes, of course, you're going to want to be a good person to everybody. But in terms of degrees, you're going to probably treat your friends a little bit better or in a little bit more of a special way than you would like, you know, your stranger or your average person. So again, going back to stoicism, I think there's something great there about, you know, being this great person. And yes, ultimately, if you're just nice to everybody and you're treating everybody with courtesy, but ultimately, you're going to be a decent person 
and people are going to like you. But there's not going to be that special bond that gets the person to say, oh, wow, this thing that Alan does for me, he probably wouldn't do for most people. Yeah, and I think stoicism tends to destroy individuality to some extent, because what makes somebody a good friend is that they're, in some sense, a good fit for you, that we're not all the same. We, we, the common ground that we share is something that we forge out of our particular life experiences, and we can draw analogies, very powerful analogies that allow us to form very deep friendships, but it what stoicism does is it says well all human beings are basically the same you know we have rational capacities we can we can think we can perceive this is worthy of respect uh we should just respect humanity kind of in the abstract equally but what that abstract perspective misses is the actual texture of life and I've always thought that to love humanity, which is a fine goal, but to love humanity, you have to love the people closest to you because otherwise, what does love even mean? How do you even know what it means to treat somebody else? Well, how do you, how do you understand them as a person similar to you who is worthy of the same consideration and the same respect as, as you and your family and your friends? Well, that consideration and respect has to be learned from within your inner circles. And then you can say, oh yeah, that person who lives on the other side of the world, they have a family like I do, or they have friends just as I have friends. So it's not, it's not as though we can appreciate them separate from our own particular friendships. We build outward. And I think the, the stoic perspective that sees the more particular relationships as something kind of tribal and kind of um, backward might be too strong, but but less significant than a kind of generalized love for humanity. I, I think it, it has things backwards. It's sort of, there's a sense of duty there. And I think that's what really doesn't appeal to so many people. And again, in a way it's a good thing, right? Because duty fosters civilization, society or whatever, you know, we want to know that other people are not going to actively or want to hurt us, right? Maybe sometimes they will. Uh, but I think the point is that we want to know that, like, again, going back to like my friendship with Alan, I want to know that he does nice things for me because he cares about me, not because he thinks it's like his sacred duty or he's being a good stoic. It's or my sacred duty. Right, right, right. He's a, being a good stoic. Right? And I think that's sort of the big turnoff for people, even though not to just, you know, shit out stoicism because it has very many great aspects we've had massimo on several times he's his phenomenal wisdom has so much to offer and especially in terms of that philosophy but yeah man i mean the downside is like this sort of lack of an emotional perspective or discount or this part of it that sort of like kind of feels like it's missing so adam in your book now you talk about aristotle and you say you know we talk about socrates and plato so what is it that you think that they have to offer that the stoics maybe might have missed well socrates is a is a good example here. Socrates, I think, is a model of self-possession from which we can learn. And, well, he has a kind of oppositional stance toward the city of Athens. The city of Athens condemns him to death for corrupting the youth by leading them to question conventional wisdom. And it, it, instead of telling the jury of Athenian citizens who's going to condemn him, you know, okay, I'll, I'll stop doing what I'm doing. I'll stop stirring the pot. He says, no, the unexamined life is not worth living. And that's one of his famous lines. So he represents a kind of oppositional figure on the one hand, and he's in opposition to the conventional authority, to the authority of the state, which is the kind of quintessential oppositional stance. But at the same time, and this is what makes Socrates so interesting, is that he believes he's the genuine educator of the, the people of Athens. So he, he basically says, the reason I'm not going to stop doing philosophy is because I think that through philosophy... I make myself better. I make the citizens of Athens better. Mm. And so he, he in that way, represents the, the self-possessed individual who's not simply a, a rebel, but somebody who believes that he's fulfilling the genuine mission of what 
a, a real statesman should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. No, uh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So and <laughs> I don't want to interrupt you. So, okay. And then in terms of what Socrates would say about, let's say how these sort of uh, three concepts or constructs intertwine, because, you know, you talk about a lot about, well, you talk about that in your book. So the idea is that essentially when you're fun, when you're fostering one or when you're improving on one, let's say you're improving on uh, self-possession, right? You're automatically improving on the other like friendship. So you have these three, right? So you have uh, kind of the immersion in nature or the sense of oneness in some sense, you know, however you want to kind of phrase that with reality. And then you have self-possession and friendship, right? friendship, right? So, and the idea is that, you know, our minds tend to kind of sense categories or create categories. But for you, the idea is sort of, uh, it's like you're holding on a little bit loosely, but obviously not letting go like the song goes, where the idea is all of these three are intertwined. So can we talk a little bit about that? And if Socrates actually talked about that as well? Well, he demonstrated it in the way mm-hmm. that he so self-possession and friendship, I think, come together in Socrates because his self-possession had to do with standing up for philosophy. But what was philosophy for Socrates? It wasn't just thinking alone by himself, spinning ideas around in his own head. It was engaging in dialogue with other citizens from all walks of life, you know, rich, poor, aristocrats, slaves. He, he spoke to everybody and he was interested in their opinions on all of the topics that he wanted to discuss, the meaning of justice, the meaning of beauty, and the meaning ultimately of a good life. And he, so his activity that motivated him and that gave him the strength to stand up against the city was an activity that was inherently friendly in the sense that he was in dialogue with people and a kind of dialogue that wasn't simply trying to refute their position, but rather was trying to reach a common truth through discussion. And and that's a very powerful model of friendship, mutual empowerment through self-examination and dialogue, where you both come out wiser. Mm -hmm. And so self-possession and friendship couldn't be separated in the person of Socrates. I think that's a very powerful model because today I think we regard self-possession and friendship as kind of two different virtues. Maybe both are important to living a good life, but we don't see the way that they're connected. And the reason we don't see it is because we understand the self in individualistic terms. So that standing up for yourself as an individual um, doesn't necessarily mean you're a good friend. You could also be a good friend, um, but somebody who's not easily swayed by the fashions of the day, who has stands his own ground, that sort of thing. Maybe not the person with a lot of friends, but actually what we miss is that if we reflect closely, I think on our greatest acts of self-possession, what we will find is that we have exemplars who motivate us to be that way. We have certain activities that define who we are that can't be understood except in partnership with other people. Mm-hmm that allow us to take a stand and to defy conventional wisdom. And it, so I think it's it's important to see those two together. And I think Socrates is one very clear example of how friendship and self-possession go together. And then as far as engagement with nature, I see that as connected as well with self-possession and friendship. Now, for Socrates, this notion of engagement with nature was um, not something that 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 it was so explicit because the ancient Greeks understood nature in very different terms than we do. Nature wasn't something that was simply out there, external to us, but nature was ordered in a, in a way to express what was best. You know, nature was conceived of as a well-ordered arrangement, a cosmos that was ordered according to the good. So self-possession, understanding the good life for yourself and understanding of nature, the movement of the planets, the arrangement of things was one and the same because both your own life was oriented to the good and also nature as a whole was structured according to the good. Mm-hmm. Today, in modern times, we we don't have that sensibility. At, at least it's not the first 
thing we think about when we think of nature. We think of modern physics, mechanism, forces that that govern us blindly. It's not as if nature is ordered to express some idea or to present a model for how to live. It's just blind forces. That's how we think in modern terms, at least that's the most familiar way of, of conceiving nature. And so there is a kind of disconnect that we face as modern human beings between ourselves, human life, and nature. You know, the, the path of the stars, the, the force of the wind, the change of the seasons, that's all stuff that happens external to us. You know, if we weren't here, that would still be going on. Nature is this thing that is separate from us. But I think it's actually short-sighted to see nature in that way. That if we're attentive to nature, and by nature, I mean nature as it first appears to us, the visible, tangible world, we will notice that in the rising and setting of the sun, in the movement of the stars, in the, the way the breeze blows through trees, the way that animals move and live and exist, we actually find models for how to interpret our own lives. And we do this all the time, very casually, you know, so-and-so is as ferocious as a lion. You know, we draw analogies, we draw metaphors from nature. And part of what I'm trying to recover in the book is an attentiveness to nature as a resource of meaning and not simply as some external force that acts on us and trying to pay attention to the ways in which we can engage with nature as interpreters or as partners in discussion, much along the lines of how Socrates would engage with a, a partner in discussion who presented some opposition. Hmm. You know, he would often have people challenge him and argue against his view of justice and Socrates would argue back but he would argue back by trying to work from within that person's perspective and try to show that person why, if they really thought it through, they would ultimately agree with him. And so I think we can do a similar thing with nature. And we do do it. We just have to notice it. Like when we, when we harness the wind in a sail and you have the, the, uh, you really respond to the wind. The wind isn't something that you control but it's something you respond to and it's something that you can channel and it's something that you can make manifest in a way that the wind itself without you capturing it in the sail wouldn't do. So that there is this human relation to nature that I believe is, is important, fundamental actually to self-possession that we really need to recover today. No, that makes me think. So in terms of engagement with, with nature, uh, does this sound like engaging with nature? I'll, I'll present an example. Um, let's say I'm outside um, and I see some uh, birds uh, flying by. And um, instead of me maybe mentally labeling them as, oh, those are some birds. I mean, not that I would actually <laughs> mentally label it this way, but let's say, <laughs> yeah, those are birds. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but instead of I suppose mentally labeling it, right, just sort of uh, observing them or maybe observing the sun setting, right, and kind of uh, really sort of taking it in as opposed to doing any sort of mental labeling, is that also sort of engagement with nature in the sense that it's kind of it's kind of like you're coming from a non-dual consciousness, like it's not like self and other. You're because like when you could mentally, I suppose you could mentally label something in a uh you don't necessarily have to be mentally labeling something and i suppose be coming from uh, ego right uh i'm sure there's a way to to do it where you're still uh coming from that sort of non-dualistic way of of looking at things but um i suppose when you're not mentally labeling you're not reducing something to something finite right like you're you're just you're kind of uh there with it is that kind of an example of uh engaging with nature yeah, I'm trying to think of some examples from my own life. Um, well, here's one, and I do mention this one in the book. It, um, there, One day I was coming back from a run, a hard run, and it was middle of the summer, and 
it wasn't a very good one. You know, you have those days when you work out and it's a grind and you don't hit the times that you wanted to. Again, the goal-oriented perspective crops up and bums you out that, that you didn't do what you wanted. Yep. I was jogging home and I I saw something, a very ordinary sight, but that for some reason in that mood struck me. It was uh, a, a big tree. I think it was an oak tree that had been cut down but you know, sawed clean at the the base. So you have the massive trunk and then you can see the rings of the tree. And from the middle of of the uh, the sawed off trunk, there were all of these shoots coming up, like the tree was growing back suddenly. And in my kind of post run, like, I would say, I don't know if stupor is the right word. It wasn't a stupor because I was attentive in a different way to the world. But, you know, I wasn't harried. I wasn't rushing around. I wasn't trying to get to work. So I stopped for a second and I said, wow, you know, this is amazing. You know, someone just cut this tree down, probably to clear a new bike path or whatever. And a few weeks later, look, it's already growing back. And I just mm -hmm. imagined how tall this thing must have been. And you know, these arrogant human hands chop it down and here it's it's growing up. And there is a kind of appreciation that is relevant to your own life. It's not like the, that that tree is exactly separate from you because you can interpret it as a model for how to live yourself. You know, well, I got cut down, not that mm. bad, but I got cut down by that workout. But look at this tree that happened to be right in my path telling me I can bring myself right back up, you know, new life rebirth. And, and we get that when we're attentive to nature. So it's, we, what we learn, I think is that nature is not simply external to us, but something that, that, um, that draws us in, that has something to teach us, but that forces us to draw the lesson for ourselves. It's not going to speak for itself. We we have to engage in the process of interpreting it. And that's the attitude that, that I'm trying to capture and to say that I, you know, I think it's, it's really important for living a good life. Right. And I love that because nature teaches us so much about harmony and discord. So if you look at conflicts, uh, you know, whatever else, I mean, not just amongst humans, but even amongst animals, I mean, it's horrendous, right? It's it's sort of like uh, sort of repugnant right to our sights. If you're seeing, you know, prides of lions sort of killing other ones, especially killing cubs or whatnot. And what's so interesting is that when we get into dialogues or debates or whatever, you know, we try to kind of defeat other people. And sort of in terms of learning from nature, right, you kind of see that nature teaches us in terms of not just like the cosmos or whatever about sort of the beauty of harmony right but it's just nature itself like the kind of environments that we find ourselves in harmony always kind of overrides and supersedes discord yet somehow the sort of fundamental part of us consistently goes toward discord so what i love about alan uh because he's so good about this is that anytime there's sort of an argument so i'm actually a little bit more combative than he is but alan tries really hard to see another person's perspective and i think what he's so good at is that forward thinking and in terms of cultivating harmony so he he sees that, okay, if I'm like just fighting with this person, even if I win this argument, probably this isn't going to get me much in terms of like this friendship. Maybe I won't even necessarily convince him. What is that going to do for the broader group, you know, et cetera, right? So he's so good at doing this where he looks at, I don't know if it's nature essentially that's taught you this, but uh, you're so good at sort of fostering harmony in a way where everybody wins. So that's what I've always appreciated about you. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, in an argument or not even an argument, um, if for some reason somebody sees themselves as as opposed to me or has uh, an or they have an alter uh, alternate perspective, I try to see if I can um, basically steel man it right, like say back to them what I think that they're saying to me, and see if then by restating what they said, if at that point they'll feel like they're understood, then I can sort of put my perspective out there. And then maybe we can integrate that to come to some sort of understanding. Also, uh, in relation to friendship, I mean, if for some reason I have a, a genuine disagreement with someone, I do weigh it against like, like I look at this argument as this is the argument, like this uh, small 
nothingness. And then the friendship is, uh, I should get that. Right. <laughs> Let's say this big, right? And then I'm like, should I really just for this, allow that to interrupt like this giant relationship that we have or could have, and then going into also going into the future and all of that. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I totally coming to some sort of understanding and not necessarily viewing somebody else as necessarily your opponent. I mean, we, we have that natural tendency, right? I mean, um, uh, part of the aspect of, uh, of, of the ego, right. Is to, um, uh, you, you, you identify with your belief or your thought and anything that is, uh, that deviates from that makes you feel a discomfort, uh, almost as if like you're, I mean, metaphorically dying, I suppose, and you're trying to survive and keep this argument or this perspective alive. It's your self-esteem dying. Yeah. But I mean, once, once you can actually see that that's, that's such, that's like a fragment of who you are or that argument or that perspective or identity isn't necessarily who you are. And this concept of self and other is just kind of like, yeah, that's uh, it. That's yeah. it. That's nature, right? And isn't that kind of what nature teaches us? Yeah. Like, you know, when you look at the ocean, right? The ocean is so much bigger than our stupid little petty squabbles. Sure. Yeah. So Adam, sort of, yeah, what are your kind of thoughts on that in terms of like argumentation and obviously sort of people falling into it and essentially what nature can teach us about harmony? Well, I think that nature can can provide um, pr immense perspective on the petty squabbles. As you said, you, you mentioned the ocean. The other image I have is uh, a gigantic waterfall. I went to to the uh, Iguazu Falls in in Brazil on the border of Brazil and Argentina. It's one of the largest waterfalls in the world, and it's a very humbling experience. And it it makes you think, wow, you know, what does this what does this all mean? You know, what what can it why why do I feel such awe in the presence of the waterfall and the uh, just the the juxtaposition, I think, of the calmness of the waters right above it, and then they start to rush a little more and then suddenly crash and fall off and then maintain their their serenity again. It's uh, a lot of uh, very much along the lines of what you're saying. It's it's quite a powerful model of how life is is vulnerable to this sudden sudden crash, you know, when you least expect it, but then the waters keep flowing on and it uh it, it gives it, it instills a sense of peace um, at the same time as it presents this terrible fate, so to speak. And, and so, yeah, I think nature is infinitely rich with these kind of examples that we can learn from if we only take the time. Right. I love that. And it's sort of like life kind of teaches you in some ways through the waterfall that you should probably move on kind of like the water, you know, and it's like life also moves on whether or not you're pissed off about something somebody said to you. It sort of just keeps going. So you can kind of go with it or you can in some ways resist and say, no, I want to try to change this person or I want to try to change the past, which obviously doesn't really get us much or doesn't get us too far. All right. Yes. Go for it. Uh, go for it. Yes. In, in terms of um, attentiveness. Right. So let's say in the example of let's say doing pull-ups or, or working out or maybe engaging in some other action is is the the main point i suppose in order to actually feel that um happiness in action so to speak um to just be as as focused and as immersed as possible um in in that action and then essentially it, it's kind of a waypoint into that happiness is is that kind of the message yes yeah, yeah that's the idea and then afterward you can interpret it and you can carry it with you through your interpretations but when you're in the midst of it 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 draws you in so thoroughly that it's not even a conscious process but you can you can preserve it you can keep it going long after the workout is over by reflecting later what that experience means and be ready then to apply that same flow state, uh, oneness to other parts of your life. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right. So I mean, we've gone over an hour, so that is such a great end off point. So, uh, Alan, final questions for Adam before we wrap up. Uh, yes. If we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Well, you can buy the book happiness in action on Amazon, uh, 
you could, or at uh, your local bookstore, hopefully, Barnes and Noble has. I know that. Um, and you can follow me at uh, on Instagram. That's my main social media platform. It's devoted primarily or actually exclusively to pull ups, <laughs> awesome. pull ups, muscle ups, and athletic stuff. But for anybody who's interested in that, you can follow me at uh, Professor dot pull ups. I love it. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. This, man. Was, this awesome. was stellar. Thank you. thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Absolutely, man. We'll be in touch with you soon. Great. Look All forward. Right. See ya. Awesome. All right. So uh, everyone, if you want to follow us, you could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. We're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.